Take a look at it with me, if you would, please. Picking it up in verse 12. John chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hoshana, or, as we see, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now you know why we sang that. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who, went, who were before him when he had called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look! The world has gone out after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who had come up to worship at the feast. And, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galil, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus answered, and he said, to answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will, will keep it for eternal life. Now if anyone serves me, let him follow me, that where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Will you pray with me, please? Father, on this beautiful Palm Sunday, the warmest day we've had all year. There are people out right now living the life that they are used to. As if this day never really happened in any way other than it was another Sunday. And sad to say that that's not just people who make no claim to you, but often people who do as well. That we can get so caught up in the regalia and the routines of life that we forget about the relationship that you have ordained and how to invest in that relationship, but not us. We have taken and set aside this time seeking that every, mo every moment be another breath that we take closer to you. So help us to understand, please. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears in the way that we need to to receive this text, but also to apply it to our lives in a way so that we're not just informed, but rather transformed. So, Lord, please, spark that revolution in our hearts. And God, for those who at one time would sing your name at the top of their lungs, but lately it's become a murmur, it's become a whisper, God, reignite for those who have never encountered you the way they should today. Bring them to that relationship with you. May we have so much fun in your word. May it burst open and come alive. And in that, God, I pray now that every one of us will finish this by saying, wow, what a wonderful God. So redeem every second. We commit it all to you and ask now for you to have your way in Jesus' name.
Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Please search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. So here we are. It's 2017. It's Palm Sunday. And of course, that's what Christians do, right? We go on Palm Sunday and we, we get our cool little crosses made out of palm fronds. Well, it's the day of celebration. It's a day of declaration. It's a, a day of commitment. And on this day, we celebrate. We celebrate the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, where he had told us about 69 seven-year periods. Now, understand, that was a half a millennia before that. And he had promised that on that day would come the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. And so, of course, you kind of count down. That should be easy. He tells us from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's by Artaxerxes Langemanus, that's the 14th of March, 445 B.C. Then we count those, if you will, those 69 seven-year periods. That's 173,880 days. So we count that and we move ourselves forward then to the 6th of April, 32 A.D. And that's where we're at exactly now. And anyone who was there ready, they had just done the math. They had known before this, as the Bible had been closed, the Old Testament closed, sealed and translated into Greek and called the Septuagint, that people could read this and see it without any form of alteration. And so with that, we expect that. And so now here we are looking at this text 2,000 years later. Now, in our context, John shows us, if you will, might I dare say, the ABCs of Palm Sunday. So if you will, sort of the you know, Palm Sunday for, for dummies. And with that, the A, uh, verses 1 through 11, is really the A of adoration. And we see this beautiful scene. The scene we see is of a woman. Uh, her name is Mary. She has a sister named Martha, and she has a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus is the one, of course, who had died, who was dead for four days, and Jesus had raised from the dead. And what we read in those first 11 verses is that Mary had taken an alabaster flask. This is alabaster. And in it, a very costly perfume called spikenard. And this is spikenard. We have a resident perfumologist. Well, he's just French, so that kind of works. So I'm going to just uh, give him the chance, just to put a, a couple of sprays. I guarantee it won't take much. Just do it from the middle, if you would, Ugo, so that people know how to sleep. It's too strong for Tell me when you can smell it. Of course, the wind's blowing that way. Can you smell it over here? It's blowing that way. So go ahead and meet him on the other side with that. Yeah, go ahead anyways. Let, you know, let him walk out smelling like it. Because that side's predominantly feminine, so I guess we're going to, you know. <laughs> there we go. Now, we've just done a couple sprays. That's it. And you... Can you smell it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just, that was just a couple of sprays. As a matter of fact, I have had this for 15 years. And it's still, um, well, maybe a quarter still full. Uh, it, I, it's, it lasts for quite a while. And I understand she takes an entire flask of something like this. In a tiny room, to be honest, the average size of a house in these days would be almost exactly the size of this room. To give you an idea. Uh, windows like this in the sense there were no glass uh, for windows. It was just open cavities. And uh, this girl 
takes this and busts it. It would be more than likely her dowry. In other words, this was the one thing that made her even more marketable on her Tinder page. And uh, she, uh, you knew that when you married, you were getting this thing. Well, ultimately, Judas would say, Judas Iscariot, the thief from the beginning, would say that this could have, in essence, been sold and and gotten a year's wages. Uh, And so... If you consider a year's wages here, that's roughly, I'm like, who makes this kind of money? 44,000 pounds a year. It's supposed to be the average in London. Of course, they must add in the Queen and all of her people too. But uh, somewhere in all that, I'm thinking, well, I, you know, with all due respect, I look around the room, I'm not thinking maybe Bruno, but maybe no one else is making that kind of. But the reason I say that is, is that a flask this size, because it's so difficult to harvest and to make into this, a flask this size would be worth that much money. And she breaks it. And when she breaks it, there's no restoring this. There's no sweeping up the pieces and gluing them back together. And she pours it at the feet of Jesus and wipes them with her hair. And just for the moment, could you just see the humility in Mary as she just falls down at Jesus' feet and lavishes the most precious thing she may own. She took it. She broke it. She gave it. And I can't help but think of how my mind, if I were in that room at that moment, would, would spin as I think about Jesus taking a precious meal from a boy so that he could break it and then give it. But I can't help but think that the greatest act of all was actually happening in front of us and we might have missed it because the father was taking the most precious thing he had, his son. He was breaking it and giving it. And here at this moment, the whole room is filled, as you might have guessed, from these few sprays. Imagine a room like this enclosed with a couple of small cavities and an entire thing full, just lavished. Jesus will not bathe again. He's already been to the temple. So he will not bathe again until he's crucified. And that means that Jesus will smell of this on the cross. When people are gambling, when soldiers are gambling for his, his clothes, they smell like this. And, I, and I, it's weird. And I know it's probably my weirdness, maybe not yours. I'm a big thing for smell. I know some people, you know, you know that. You hang out with me. And it's like I, like, I just pick a scent, and like that's my winter scent. And this is, you know, that kind of thing. But every once in a while, on a weird day, and things have just gotten crazy, you just kind of smell, and you're like, okay. I'm reminded of these beautiful moments. There's something about your olfactory, your nose, that reminds you of cool memories, and it and attaches. And I just wonder throughout that week, the hard times Jesus would have, how he'd just maybe take a quick smell and be reminded of this beautiful act of love. And, and, and here's our beginning, is this adoration. And the reason I say that is our first verse starts with, well, the next day. So we have to, well, what was the day prior? It was the day of this beautiful act of love. And if we could see the humility of Mary at his feet and then the hope as she busts forth this thing, as she surrenders the, the greatest thing she had, or really more than just this, her future, she hands it to Jesus. And so now we're at the context of this next day. Jesus is still smelling like this. Jesus is proceeding with the sweet aroma of the act of love upon him. And the multitude is peering because they're not just coming to see Jesus now. They're coming to see this man who came back from a four-day death, Lazarus, because now the news of this is getting out. And the priests on the other end, they're plotting how to kill Jesus and this new nuisance, this resurrected Lazarus. And that takes us to the B. The bees, the beholding. We go from the adoration to this bee beholding from verses 12 to 19. And he tells us the next day, a great multitude then had come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees 
And they took these branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And, and then they cried this thing out. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But why in the world would they do this? Why would you just take a bunch of big leaf plants like that and throw them down on the ground? Well, John had actually told us why at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. Because he told us, by the way, that we were to prepare a way for the Lord. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 5, he told us that every valley was to be filled, every mountain was to be brought low, and every crooked place made straight, and every rough place made smooth. And the idea was kind of simple, is that what, what John said was is that the Lord is coming, and because the Lord is coming, you really want to be ready. Because wouldn't you hate it? It would be kind of like this. You're single, but you don't want to be. And someone says, hey, I'm confident that the man of your dreams or the woman of your dreams is about to kind of walk by in a couple of days. They're on their way. They're within grasp. Be ready. What would you do? You'd probably make it easy for them to be attracted to you. Because you kind of know somehow in that you'd want to, in essence, prepare yourself for that event. In a similar manner on this, the greatest lover of all mankind Jesus, God in the flesh, is, is about to approach. And John says, listen, you really want to make sure that when the king comes, he has no obstacle to get into your heart, is the idea. The hills of your pride and the valleys of your own self-consummation and regrets and, and the things you look back in your past, and you look at all that and you think, God, you know, I'd really receive you, but I've got my own thing, or but I'm kind of a miserable, rotten person. You really, he goes, you know what? The king's coming, but you, what John's telling us is the king's coming for you. You're on his mind. And so the people lay out these branches to make it easy for the king to come. And as they do, they cry out these three things. First, Hoshana. Hoshana, by the way, and this blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, actually comes from Psalm 118, written a thousand years before Jesus would make this particular descent. Hoshana, by the way, means... Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the as we sang, in essence, means you are the Christ, the fulfillment of that Daniel prophecy, for instance, where the Mashiach, the Messiah, Nagid, the Prince, would come. It would be easier for us to say it this way, because what we're saying then is you're the fulfillment of all Old Testament, of the Tanakh, but we might say it this way, you are the one person I have been waiting for. You were the one person that I knew that once I met you, everything was going to be okay. So they're crying out, please save me. Because you're the one I've been waiting for. The king of Israel. Now, to declare that means that he is declared, and I hope you recognize that, in this particular declaration, they are declaring him Savior and Lord. Are you recognizing that? Um, they're not just saying, save me and then serve me. They're saying, save me, but be my boss, because you are the king. I'm not the king. I expected you to come. You are, and understand, I'm not just kind of looking for someone. I'm not kind of auditioning but, butlers at this moment. I'm really looking for somebody because I recognize I've really made a mess of my life, and I need you to take this thing over because it really is mocked up. And I look at this, and the reason I say that is as though their declarations are so sweet, well, they may not necessarily mean the same thing. Never ask God to save you, but not necessarily from life or from yourself or from the guilt of your sins, just from the moment. 
save me because at this moment I, I could be pregnant or I could be ill. I could have a disease. I could get arrested or that person might want to kill me. Or, you know, at this moment I'm walking home and I think that person's following me. Lord, save me now. I mean, these are, and those are legitimate cries, but they're very temporary. And unfortunately, what happens is if the only time we really cry out to God is in a foxhole, when we really feel like life or some form of comfort is really on the balance, well, to be honest, the moment we're comfortable, we'll have no intent of any way seeking him whatsoever. There's no relationship in that. God's a genie. He's a bodyguard. And if you blow the horn or say in Jesus' name or whatever, maybe he'll jump out and, and keep you safe. But that's not why Jesus died for you. That's not why Jesus died for me. He's in love with you. Because he's in love with you, he really, really wants to spend every breath with you. The ironic part about it, and I'll use myself so you don't have to think about it yourself if you will, is that I'm not the catch. He is. I mean, it's not like I'm perfect. He is. It's not like, you know, he comes with no baggage. I come with all kinds of baggage. You know, he has no faults. He's not going to fail me. He's not going to be faithless in any way. There's never going to be a point where I'm going to be disappointed because he said something and he never followed through with it. Or, wow, I really expected differently. He's just, he's perfect. And, and I'm not. I'm in every point opposite in many ways of, of him and his character. And yet in that, he wants me. The ironic thing is that the balance is whether I would want him back. And that just doesn't even make sense to me how that could be a choice there. It doesn't make any sense at all. It seems sheer insanity that there would be somebody who actually would think, no, that's not, that's not good enough. So put this into context for a, for a moment and we'll develop the rest of this because this is really kind of where it hangs is how he presents himself so that you know when you're saying save me what you're supposed to be saved from and when you're calling him king what you're supposed to be, he's supposed to be the king of. So let me put it this way. It's like, well, let's say once upon a time there was a king and a king had a bunch of constituents, people who in essence appeared to be happy in his kingdom, but somewhere down the line they decided to rebel. And for whatever reason, they've just got sick and tired of the fact that the king had rules and laws like any king or kingdom would. And so somewhere down the line, somebody kind of says, you know, really, we should make up our own rules and we should make things relative and let's stop telling somebody. How dare you tell me? Who do you think you are? Okay, you're the king, but not as far as I'm concerned. And somewhere down the line, the, these constituents in the kingdom decide they're going to rebel. Now that's treason, punishable by death. And with that, they've become enemies of the king. So the king, in his kindness, sends his son, the prince, to go and seek to actually reconcile with them, warning them that they have two options, to change their mind and receive the punishment necessary, but to die with honor, or to continue to declare war on the king and die without it. And as the prince comes and he meets the people and speaks with the people, something strange starts to happen. He starts to love them. He loves the very people who are enemies of his father, and in essence, enemy of him as well. But as he continues to reach out to them, he recognizes that he actually comes up and, if you will, hatches a plan. Now, it's a, it's a faulty story, but follow me on it. And ultimately, he goes to the king and says, you know what? You can take all of their punishment and place it upon me. I love them so much. And the king agrees. And all of your punishment, my punishment, in rebellion to that kingdom and that king, is laid upon the willing shoulders of our Savior. As he dies on the cross, there's no death penalty left for us as long as we're actually willing to approach the king in his name. The most amazing thing is to think anyone would actually at that point say, no, I'd rather continue to declare war on the king. 
because I'm so sick and tired of him making the rules. I've got my own plans for my life. And yet all of this was because the king himself loves you. And then I look at this text and I realize these people are saying the right things. But that doesn't mean their heart's in the right place. So it tells us this. Jesus is going to lay out two things that are actually, in essence, going to play this thing out. Verse 14, it says, When Jesus, then, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, well, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And so Jesus kind of approaches, but he approaches in a very, very strange manner at least for our particular situation, as we're expecting it. Now, first of all, the text that is being quoted here is from Zechariah. Zechariah, for what it's worth, was a prophet during the rebuilding of the kingdom after they had been taken captive for 70 years. So that puts him roughly about a half a millennium as well, roughly 500 B.C. And he writes this, and this is Zechariah 9.9, word for word then, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, for he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's the text that's being quoted here. So, in a case of enmity, our kingdom is going to war with another kingdom. Our king is going to present himself in one of two manners. He's going to present himself on a white steed. The idea of it is a big macho horse, or the idea that our king kicks butt, and so we're expecting that this thing's going to be victory. And he would do that to rally his troops. He would do that with the idea that I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to war against you know, whoever the enemy is at this moment, and come on, who are you? With me, you're with me. Yeah! And well, we don't even care. We just grab our weapons and we run after him. No, that would be the case in any major battle of form, sort of hand-to-hand combat. But what if a situation were that he actually wasn't actually looking to fight, but rather just simply to make peace? If the king were to come to make peace, he would run on a donkey because the idea of it was that donkey showed submission and that donkey showed humility. One thing's for sure, if you've ever ridden on a donkey, donkeys only go where they want to go when they want to go there. Now, they're pretty smart that way. They have a, a lot of really brilliant aspects of them, but they certainly have a very strong will. Matter of fact, we often use terms like you're stubborn as a donkey. And the reason I say that is a king is not going to charge another king on a donkey. It isn't like he's kind of got his Colt 45 tucked into his vest coat and he's just going to kind of ride up, dun, 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 ah, you know, it's just, there's none of that. This donkey is going to come slow and he's going to be lower. And I remind you, usually the height of a head shows some form of superiority. And so when a king rode on something kind of little and unassuming, he did so in great humility with the idea of speaking peace to the other side. Now, Jesus is not doing this to Satan. Jesus is doing this to the Father. Because like our story, the king had sent his son, the prince, who came and he went to go make peace with the father. Now here we are thinking, well, when the Messiah comes, he's certainly going to destroy Rome because Rome's making our life miserable and we hate that. And what we really want is freedom. But Rome's been in, I mean, with all due respect, Rome's been in gone as far as as a world power, although we don't want to say that, you know, we say it too carefully because Deborah and all. But the... Hey, they, they still have a lot of really wonderful things, they, uh, including their food. But the 
But this king is coming in a way that really should strike us in a very odd manner because he's not coming in a way that we want him to at that moment. Let me say that again. He's not coming in the way we want him to. Because at that moment, what we want him to do is to sort of show himself like Conan the Barbarian. We want him to show himself rippled and just mighty and cracking things and casting mountains into the sea. I mean, he's got all this power at his disposal. You know, angels all around him marching like gigantic, you know, like a gigantic troop of of invincible. And at that moment, we're like, God, save now. And Jesus is like, I am saving now, but you may not see how I'm going to do it. Because what you want for this moment is your life is pretty, pretty messed up. It's pretty rough. There's something in your life and it's just, you just can't get past it. And it's rough and you just, God, just get me out of this thing because it's kind of like your Achilles has been pulled. And he's like, but you know, even if I healed that, you'd still run into hell. I'd rather do something more permanent. Because if I did that and then I had no relationship with you, what's the benefit of that? So, he comes on a donkey. He's like, I've come to make peace. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Luke, what we do read is Jesus is weeping as he enters the city. He goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known this day, the day of your visitation, the day which is made for your peace. But you wouldn't have it. You know, look at In the Middle East to this day, it's always our God against their God. Whatever the two people are fighting, it's always a God against a God kind of thing. And it's really hard to see that the greatest power is actually displayed in not blasting someone to kingdom come. But as a person who grew up fighting and trained and fought competitively, I can tell you, the idea of not fighting takes greater strength to me than jumping into the brawl. Especially when you know this thing is going to be done in a hurry. And you go, you know what? I'm seeing the humility of my, donkey, of my king on the donkey. And that was exactly what Zechariah promised. But listen to it again. He is just having salvation. And they're crying out, God save now. And he is just having salvation. But his salvation is a salvation of peace. Not just a salvation of conquering. That's another religion. And people are blowing themselves up for it. Therefore, the other thing that seemed a little odd is that when the people were with him, it seemed that there seemed to be somebody else with him as well. Who were with him, they called out Lazarus out of the tomb. Well, these people are running around telling everyone, check out Lazarus. This was the guy dead four days. And I realized, remember how with Mary, it seemed like the two great things was this great humility of breaking this alabaster flask and then the great hope that that love would pour it all out on him. Well, now I see it with the king. But the king here, he shows me the great humility as he rides on a donkey, but also the great hope as I see next to him, Lazarus. And people going, hey, that's the guy. Check him out. Dead four days. Could you imagine what morning program would not want him? So what was it like to be dead for four days? Where did you go? What was it like? What did it smell like? What did it look like? Was it hot? Was it cold? Did you see friends? Did you see a mum? I mean, there's things you could ask at a, at a time like that. And that's quite a, quite a stir. And I can't help but think, well, take a look at it from this standpoint of what we're looking at. We're looking at two very strange things. We're looking at a king on a donkey that's going to bring salvation by making peace. And then we're watching a guy who'd been raised from the dead. Do you get it? 
There's the whole message of the gospel right there in front of us. Jesus is going to make peace by how? By dying on the cross for us. He's going to pay our, our fee. But that's only half his story. On the third day, just as promised, he was going to raise from the dead. And that's the story of the Lazarus guy next to him. And if you don't think that that was in his mind, take a look at the third of our three parts. We saw the adoration of the Son of God. We saw, the, if you will, to be, the beholding of the Son of God. And now we see the call of the Son of God. That's our seeing. Verse 20, it says, Now there were certain Greeks. They had also come up, by the way, interestingly enough, to Passover. The same thing we celebrate, if you will. And they came to Philip. Philip, by the way, throughout Scripture, tends to be the friendly one. People have a tendency, by the way, Philip always seems to be finding people like a kid with a lunch. Andrew, on the other hand, by the way, seems to be the problem solver. He's the one who gets it done. You know, it's like you put six guys and one of them finally says, I, this is how we can solve the problem. And the others are like, okay, whatever. Well, Andrew's that guy. So Philip, being the sort of social one, if you will, kind of meets uh, you know, these guys, these, these Greeks, and they're like, we really want to see Jesus. And Philip's like, oh, I'm not really sure. Well, let me go ask Andrew. And Andrew's like, well, okay, let's take him to Jesus. Jesus, by the way, notice doesn't say, hey, guys, super cool, you're here, really love it, by the way, Callimera, you know, starts speaking Greek. At this moment, Jesus, by the way, starts busting into this thing. He goes, now is the time that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Glorified, and it simply means you're going to see me for who I really am. You're going to see me for what I really am about. And then he uses this analogy. Now, understand that during the time, by the way, of Passover, we also had this one-day event called the, the Feast of First Fruits. Now, First Fruits, by the way, was you took the very the tips of the, the beginning, the very beginning of the best buds from your house, and you took the little bit of it, and you took it, and you took it to the to the temple or near the temple, and you took it and you put it on the ground and you crushed it, and you ground it into there, and you were saying, as this part is, may the whole harvest be. That was the idea. And interesting, as we're doing that, we're doing that with grain, and Jesus uses this metaphor to some degree, and he goes, now listen. There's a piece of grain. It's a piece of wheat or a piece of barley or whatever. It's a seed. And you look and you think, all oh, the potential of this thing. So much potential. But this grain, strangely enough, has a will. And because of that, it can make a couple choices. Like you, by the way. We tend to look, I, I tend to look at things like a nut and I realize that it isn't just a quick bite. There's an orchard in that nut in training with the proper planting and the proper environment that will produce a tree that will produce a lot of other nuts, which then properly planted become an orchard. And all of a sudden, a barren countryside becomes completely full to feed a thousand families. And he says, but the problem with that nut, if you will, is it could choose not to. No, notice it doesn't just say die in the text. It says fall to the ground and die. Now, here's my problem with the word fall. Traditionally, when I hear the word fall, I tend to think of it as a passive action. In other words, you don't choose to do that. So, you know, you're walking down the street, you see somebody and you're trying to look cool, and you're like, and of course, that's the only time when the pavement's uneven and you've decided to meet it with your face right in front of them. And you're like, check it out, I'm sorry. You're wiping your dignity off your head. Well, the reason I say that is, is that this particular word in its, in its parsing really is actually in the active sense. And all I mean by that is it's literally, unless this seed throw itself down, and that's very different from just fall. 
It isn't surrendering to gravity. It is making a conscious choice to humble itself. And unless it's willing to actually humble itself and throw itself down on the ground and then die, it remains alone. And there's our motivation. And understand that's what this whole thing is about. Is on one side that seed, that little nut can say, forget it, man. I'm not going to sit underneath someone else. I'm not going to, you know, I'll elevate myself. I don't need to throw myself down. I'm I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the gatekeeper of my entire future. I'll do what I want, whenever I want, however I want. And God's like, that's your prerogative. But as long as you do that, you'll remain alone. And as long as you're okay with being alone, that's your prerogative. He goes, but let me just say this. On the other side of it, you can choose another side. You can choose to throw yourself down. And when you choose to throw yourself down, and you die there, you'll never be alone. You'll be, in, you'll be surrounded by a whole bunch of other nuts that have done the same. Can I just say, my beloved nuts, you're just a nut. And you have that choice. And that's the call, by the way, of the Son of God. It's actually, if you notice, humility and hope. Just like Mary, and just like the descent into Jerusalem. There's the humility of a woman who throws herself down at Jesus' feet. There's the humility of a king on a donkey. And there's the humility of a nut or a piece of grain, a grain that will throw itself down and say, you know what? I understand in the world I'm around, I will be seen as weak, but only in God's economy can surrender be actually construed as success. Now, Jesus had all the power in the world and he could have just destroyed Satan. He was just going to blow him up and they could have blown us up because we were his enemies too. He hasn't. Because he's driven by something greater and that's love. On the first case, we see an adoration. And that adoration, again, is to take that which was most precious and let it be broken and given. I don't know if you realize this, but God adores you. Because he told me in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like one who had a who was in search of a precious gem, a treasure. And that treasure he found in a field and he gave and got rid of everything else. He sold everything else he had just so he could purchase the whole field just to get it. And either you think that that's you giving up everything. The only problem is he had already defined the field in a previous parable on the same chapter in the field was the world. So someone was walking in the world and saw something so precious there that he said, I'll give up everything just to get that. I can't help but think that's you. And if that's you, that means that Mary's act of adoration was a very small reflection of what the Father was doing right in front of us. He was taking the thing most precious to him, his own son. And Jesus, demonstrating the call, threw himself down. Philippians 2 makes that clear. Though being equal with God, and that wasn't considered robbery, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a man, and even more so, of the form of a servant, then became obedient even to death on the cross. And I can't help but think, he did that because he's in love with you, that's why. 
because he didn't want to be alone from you. That's the crazy part. So on this particular Palm Sunday, look at what Jesus is telling us. He goes, now, if I've lived that example in front of you, it's your turn. But you don't do it to get me. You already have me. You do it to get others. Because I want to use you now to draw others to me. But you can't do that high on the limb. And you say, hey, step off the throne of my heart and my life. And they willingly say, have me. But this humility comes with a hope. And the hope is that it would bear much fruit. That lives would be changed. Some of you have known that long. I've seen you before, not just encountering Jesus in some sense or going to church, but I mean, before you fell in love with the God that fell in love with you. And the way that I see the difference it's astounding. And, and if that isn't you today, I, I really want it to be. But that's the choice you have. You can, you can choose to stay on the limb, watch the others fall and criticize them and say, how stupid, look at that. It's interesting because that was what happened with Mary when she threw herself down at Jesus' feet. There was the thief who said, what, what waste? It's like a year's salary and you're going to do it with this? As we go to prayer, beloved, on this Palm Sunday, what are you going to do with this king who's come to make peace? Peace. Eres. Erene. It comes from a word that literally means to, do, to join. Somebody that you had been in an argument with that you're no longer friends with and something happens to rejoin you two to be intimate again. God created you to have that relationship with him. We in our own selfishness and self-centeredness and rebellion have chosen against the kingdom. And Jesus paid the price, dying on the cross and rose again as the testimony of Lazarus shows us in front of us. There's a whole new life. And it isn't like I just give up my old one. It isn't like I just give up my old one. It's that I know that there's a whole new one because this humility comes with hope. And that hope is that the whole new life, and I can tell you there's no party like walking with Jesus. You know, I had a friend who used to say, we party to forget, we celebrate to remember. And I can just say that my celebration began the day I said yes to Jesus and everything changed. So as we go to prayer, let me ask you, have you said yes to this, Jesus? I mean, I'm not just talking about get out of hell free, save me from my Rome. But yes to the one who died to be with you. He'd rather die than live without you. And if you have, we pray a dangerous prayer with me. God, we throw ourselves down and throwing ourselves down. Bear much fruit now. We pray with me. God, I just want to thank you so much for the privilege of this time. You've given us a sweetness in here today. There's been a blessing to be able to sit in here, Lord, and to welcome you as our King, as our Lord. And Lord, we recognize that not everybody who actually declares you Lord or King, that not everybody is actually going to mean it the way you wish. 
sure, we would love you to save us from every discomfort. We'd love you to save us from every debt. But if that's really, if you're just a means to an end, then it really is silly. But Jesus, you didn't humble yourself just so that you could become our butler. You humbled yourself so that we could be set free and have you and be with you for eternity. And I just pray today first that we would recognize that. And here in this room, if there be any who are not sure or you're sure you haven't accepted this gift of Jesus for who he claims to be and not just for what you want him to be, pray this prayer with me now. God, I I just want to give you me. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm guilty without you, but I recognize you've paid that price on the cross and you rose again. And you want my life. You, You want it. You want me and you love me. And with that, then, you're simply asking for permission. And I give you permission to have my life and make it something beautiful. Make me brand new in here right now. Be my savior of everything and my king of everything. Transform me and let me be yours and be mine. I hand you me. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, I pray for every one of us who have made that declaration, be it now or before, that today we would be willing to throw ourselves down, die to ourselves, let you change the world through us. We lay down, Lord, those precious things, our future, our priorities, our singleness, our marriages. We lay all that stuff down. Whatever we think we're entitled to. We just say, you know, Lord, you know how to bear fruit and change the world. So we just throw ourselves in your hand. Do with us as you please. Because I'm sure it is the best thing. So have us now, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.